Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith, and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Here's someone whose work is helping to restore our planet, at least that's the idea, at the University of New South Wales, together with uh, the University of Sydney, Deakin University, scientists in Portugal and Brazil and others have unlocked the DNA of the cane toad. You know, if we could find in the genome of the cane toad a biological control for, for that pest, it would have a very good effect on healing our own environment from some of the damage that's being done from this animal that was brought here originally to attack cane beetles and basically took over, as we've learned on the show last year. It's made its way all the way from Queensland right across to um, to the Kimberleys, for goodness sake. It is, uh, and as it goes, you know, the populations of other animals are really suffering. Well, the lead researcher on this project is Professor Peter White from the University of New South Wales. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Stephen. I know that it's taken four and a half years to get to the point you're at now. What was the original idea four and a half years ago? Uh, did you say, oh, I think I'll commit the next four and a half years of my life to mapping the genome of the cane toad? Well, it actually all started um, in a restaurant in, in Sydney, and I was um, chatting <laughs> with my friend. Like so many good ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we started talking about the cane toad, and we, we're both virologists. And we'd been, you know, we'd been talking about the possibility of putting that herpes virus into the Murray-Darling to kill the carp. Yes. I said, well, why don't we get a, a virus for the cane toad and let's control its population? Yes. We thought it was a good idea and finished lunch. And one way now with modern technology to find viruses is actually to look through their genome. And then sometimes viral genetics get integrated into host DNA so you can find viruses in the, in the genome. And I've been doing a little bit of this, so I thought, well, look, let's go and get the cane toad genomes, and I'll have a look through it, see if I can find some viruses. But it wasn't there. There was no genome. I couldn't believe it, because it's an iconic Australian creature. Yeah. I would have thought there must be a genome there. Oh, there it tells you a lot. No one really cares about the cane toad. We rather don't <laughs> like it. Um, all right, look, I think we, we kind of get the idea of what a genome is broadly. We know it's got to do with DNA mapping, but... Why don't you give us the lowdown? Exactly what is a genome? If I, if I came across one at the supermarket, how would yeah. I know? <laughs> well, basically, um, well, human's genome is 3.3, I think, billion base pairs. So all it is is the actual genetic sequence that makes up that animal. And, of course, it's, it needs to be decoded. Um, but basically, if you know the genome, you've got the blueprints, um, you've got the plans of the factory, you know what every skin molecule consists of, whatever skin protein is made up of in terms of amino acids. You, you know, you know how, what the, how the liver might function by looking at its enzymes. So you can learn a massive amount if you have the genome. And is the genome specific to a species or is it also uh, specific to individuals? Yeah, yeah. Genomes, yeah, every animal has a, has a different genome and uh, individuals' genomes, one human to the next, vary by, I think, about point, no, I don't know, a tiny percentage anyway, but they're very closely related. Well, presumably then, you can also, I mean, we, we spoke on this program a while ago to Rick Shine. Now, I understand yeah. that he's one of your collaborators in this research. He was telling us, and we were fascinated at how the cane toad has effectively um, evolved from the time it was introduced somewhere up near Rockhampton to the point where as it's traversed across to the west as that's happened it's actually developed 
different skills. So those are different individuals than the ones originally in the original population in Queensland. Can the genome tell you more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Rick and Leanne Rollins are collaborating, and this is something that they're going to go on and look at. So the the toad came from um, a wet jungle area, and you know, lived in the jungle. And then, how how on earth was it able to hop across a very dry, arid desert in northern Australia? Yeah. Well, the toads from um, French Guiana went to Jamaica and Puerto Rico, and then totally went to Hawaii. And we got 102 toads. One died. Um, in 1935, and those toads then hopped towards Western Australia and down towards New South Wales. So what we're planning on doing is taking a toad at the front of the line, the back of the line, all of those islands, all the way back to French Guiana, and we're going to sequence the genomes of all those toads now, Mm -hmm. because we can now do it for a fraction of the cost, Mm -hmm. now that we've got the first genome, and we're going to look at that toad's evolution. Yes, that toad turned... And it looks very different now. The toad on the western front looks very different to the toad in the jungle. And it's got longer legs, um, obviously. The toads, which don't, aren't on the front line, they don't really move that far from where they, you know, from where they are. But the, the toads on the, on the western front continually hop west. If you drop it, it will turn and will hop west. Oh, it's amazing. No. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Go west, young toad. <laughs> um, so... If we, we can look at how the changes in the genetic code from the original French Guiana toads to the Western Front toad, we can see what's changed yes. in its genetics. All right, so that's one of the things that you can do now that you've mapped the yes. genome, and you can do it for a fraction of the cost. Map, mapping the genome, I gathered, actually took a supercomputer a really long time about, to think about it. Yeah, well, we've got what we call bioinformaticians, and we've got some very good ones on this project Rich and Mark and Tim, and they they took two years. They had to tr- you know try a few different ways, but it took two years for them to assemble the ge- the jigsaw pieces back into the genome. And they used the uh, university supercomputer to do it. Yeah, mm. and you got to book time for that, I suppose. Like back in the old days, you had to book time in the big IBM supercomputer room. Yep. It ran it ran Fortran, and it could add three numbers up in half an hour. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but that was back in the time. day. Well, it's no different now, Stephen. <laughs> it just does a lot more stuff. Okay, so now your interest, you said that in that famous restaurant conversation, I hope it was a good lunch, um, because <laughs> yeah, it it, uh, you, now you've said, hang on a minute, because you're a virologist, you're not an entomologist, your interest is viruses. Have you found your virus? That's the question. Well, yes. Uh, we've we've looked through the toad genetics and we've found three viruses now. Uh, one of them's a retrovirus related to sort of HIV. Um, and then we found a couple of other viruses as well, the coronavirus and the circovirus. And now we're beginning to explore the idea that these viruses uh, might be able to control the population. Um, but they need to be toad-specific. And um, it's looking quite good at the moment. How do you work out if they're toad-specific? And, and to close the gap, the obvious problem there is if you release a virus that does this toad but also does a whole bunch of Australian native frog species, then that would be a bit counterproductive. <laughs> of course, yeah, that would be a total disaster. Um, so we'd have to do a lot of uh, lab testing first to make sure that any these viruses don't kill any of the native uh, frogs and newts. Um, we can get a handle on that already because certain families of viruses can jump the species barrier quite easy. Mm. And that's, um, but these type of viruses we've found, they tend to be species specific. So, but we'd need to do significant testing 
to make sure that it's safe for, or for the native animals. So, so you'd need to do more than looking at their genome. You need to also field test it, as it were. Um, yeah, well, the CSIRO have already done this, um, both with um, the rabbit and with fish with the herpes virus. The carp thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's been done before. Okay. And with the rabbit, uh, it worked very well. Uh, on two occasions, it wiped out the rabbit population by 80% in the 1950s. <laughs> yeah. And again in the 1995, 96. Yeah. And the rabbit population is much smaller now. Uh, it's never got back to the numbers it was in the early 50s. Yeah, yeah. On Open House, our guest is Professor Peter White from the esteemed University of New South Wales and the lead researcher in this um, amazing study uh, about the genome of the cane toad. You know, Peter, the joy in this job is that every question I ask gives an answer, but then that begs like five more questions. Um, what does it tell us about what we can use of the cane toad's um, toxic nature, I know this is an area of your interest as well, that might provide us with new drug treatments or who knows what else? Yes, yeah, good question. It's not it's not really an area of mine, but um, the CSIRO, it's an area of the CSIRO at the moment, and there's a guy there called Mark Kizzard who's, who's been working on this, and he's using the genome now to understand how the toxin is made and how it works, and um, obviously that's very important uh, because if he, if he succeeds, if he knows how it's made and works, we might be able to you know, prevent it being poisonous. Okay, so if we know about the toxin, we might be able to limit it, its effect on our native animals. But the more important thing is to control the population of the cane toad, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, and we need more than just one way to do that. Um, there is good news, though, because the cane toad... Um, is becoming uh, less destructive as the native and fauna learns that it's poisonous and mothers can actually teach, mother, mother quolls can teach their young not to eat cane toads once they get the idea that it's poisonous. And so eventually um, that will reduce its impact. Um, but we're going to need more than just that, you know, that type of measure. Is that an example of what scientists call adaptation? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Ad adaption of behaviour. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So in relation to the cane toad population, um, it's worth for a moment thinking about, you know, where all this is going at a sort of global scale or the, the things that we're concerned about on this program. We brought the cane toad to Australia for a particular purpose, and that was you've described it as our love of sugar. Um, it's had an, it's had a, a widespread impact on our environment. It's not the way things were meant to be. So do you ever see your role as being restoring things to the way they should be? Well, you're absolutely right there, Stephen. The, bringing the toad to Australia brought an imbalance in the eco ecosystem. Um, and the, the native animals were never meant to cope with a poisonous toad. They'd never seen one before. It's like Superman landing on the planet. <laughs> so <laughs> we need to, um, we need to, you know, we, we, we made this problem. We need to do something about it, in my opinion. And, you know, you're right about um, humans' love of sugar because wherever the sugar cane went, the cane toad followed because we took it there. We t it went from South America to the Caribbean islands and we took them there. And now it's spread to 138 countries around the world and it's the most widely distributed vertebrate on the planet. Wow. And it's all because, it's really all because of our humans' obsession with sugar. Well... Just <laughs> just another good reason to give up sugar, although the sugar industry will hate me for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Do you take sugar in your tea? 
I do, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those, you know, humans that's been trained to eat sugar, I guess. But, Peter, at least you're doing something about it. <laughs> well... We're trying to, Stephen. <laughs> it's early days, though. You, you, just in passing, you find this pretty exciting, I gather. Well, I think humans screw up environment, and then it, it, I think it's our job to go back and try and fix it. Yeah. Um, and you could argue that with climate change as well. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Thank you for unlocking that world for us. Pleasure. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Stephen. All the best. Yeah, Professor Peter White, um, an exciting job, and he's repairing the world. That's that's pretty cool. There's your redemptive purpose right there. From the University of New South Wales, um, and his team worked at the Ramachiotti Centre for Genomics. It's interesting, just as an aside, they're starting to um, now work out whether the double jeopardy rule, that's, you know, when you've charged and given not guilty, you can't be charged again with the same offence. That would be double jeopardy. Um, there are some exceptions if compelling new evidence comes up. Now they're having a debate in the legal um, profession about whether, as science unlocks new evidentiary methods, like, for example, DNA-type research, whether that ought to be another exception to the double jeopardy rule so that uh, they can go back, examine DNA in a way that wasn't possible before and then p- potentially get a conviction, um, which would lead to a, you know justice and a closure and all those things that our system uh, is based on. Interesting stuff. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.